Well, recently, I've introduced uh, to my kids via YouTube one of my favorite TV shows as a child. One of the best, Pinky and the Brain. Now, these are the two laboratory mice whose genes have been spliced, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other is insane, as the song goes. And of course, every night, Pinky, Pinky will say to Brain, well, gee, Brain, what are we going to do tonight? And Brain responds, the same thing we do every night, Pinky, try to take over the world. Now, friends, pardon the silly opening illustration, but I couldn't help but think of Pinky and the Brain when I thought about our passage today in Genesis, Genesis 38. If someone were to ask me, John, what are you going to preach on today from, from Genesis 38? Well, I think I would have to almost sheepishly, yet boldly reply something like, the same thing I preach on every week in Genesis, Pinky. Fallen humanity continues to go off the rails in the rebellion against the Lord. And at times it seems like God's chosen people are no better than the world around them. And yet nothing can stop the promises of God who in sovereign grace is determined to fulfill his plan to save the world. Honestly, it feels like a broken record. Same song, different verse. Over and over and over again, we've seen not only the depths of man's depravity, but the glory of God put on display through his sovereign and free mercy to sinners like us. Over and over and over again, just when it seems like God's promises would fall short and his plan of salvation just fall flat on its face, God has intervened to turn sin into grace and darkness into light. And friends, that's what we're going to see again in our passage today in Genesis 38. So please turn there in your Bibles. Genesis 38. I failed to look up the page numbers. Anybody have it in the pew Bible or in the seat Bible? I believe around page 32. Is that right? 32. All right. Friends, remember, we're on the home stretch of Genesis, the final section of this epic story, this epic book of origins of the world and God's plan to rescue fallen humanity from, from our cosmic treason against him. And this last section, right at the beginning, as we saw last week, we're, we're told what it's about. It's about the family of Jacob. But it's, it's, it's clear that from the beginning of Genesis 37 on to the end of the book that, that one of Jacob's sons is going to take focus particularly, right? And that's Joseph, the, the second youngest son, the son of his beloved Rachel, who, is, who passed away, uh, as we saw earlier, just a few years earlier. And we saw in chapter 37 that God had revealed to Joseph through dreams that, that one day his family would bow down to Joseph as if he were their king. And of course, that fueled uh, the hatred of Joseph's brothers against him. And so one day they decided to kill Joseph. They threw him into a pit and they were going to leave him to die until Judah persuaded the other brothers to sell him as a slave to a, a caravan that just happened at that time to be passing through on its way to Egypt. And chapter 37 kind of ended on a cliffhanger, didn't it? We, we learned that the caravan arrived to Egypt and Joseph was sold into the ownership of the captain of the guard of Pharaoh himself, a powerful and influential man named Potiphar. So, so, so given this cliffhanger, you'd expect the story to continue right away with what becomes of Joseph in Potiphar's house. That's what you'd expect. But instead, 
the movie scene fades to black. And when the next scene appears, instead of seeing the words Egypt at the bottom of the screen to help us locate what's going on, up comes the word Canaan. We're back in the promised land. Moses, our narrator, pushes pause on the development of the Joseph story to help us understand what's going on back in Canaan with Joseph's family. And he decides to focus on one particular brother, Judah, the son of Leah, Jacob's fourth-born son. Now, just like we saw back in chapter 34, chapter 38 is full of these sordid details. But before we get into the story, let's think a little bit more about the storyline of Genesis to help frame this passage for us and help us understand it. For most of the book of Genesis, friends, it's been very clear who are the recipients of God's promises, who carry the saving promises on. So, so right at the beginning, Genesis 12, God called and he made a covenant with whom? Abraham, right? He called him to be a light to the nation, so to speak. And he, he promised three things to Abraham, offspring, land, and blessing. And that one day, Abraham's offspring would bless the world. And we know that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then the, the promise continues through Abraham's son, Isaac, and then was handed down to Isaac's son, Jacob. But now that Jacob has 12 sons, it's really not entirely clear who will carry on the promise, is it? You might think it would be Reuben. Reuben's the firstborn. But remember, Reuben, according to chapter 35, disqualified himself from that honor by his sexual immorality with Bilhah, one of his dad's wives. Well, well then surely the promises would continue to the next two sons, one of the next two, Simeon and Levi. But friends, remember they're killing Rampage at Shechem in re retribution for Dinah's rape. It seems very unlikely that, that, that Simeon and Levi would carry on the promise. Well, well, then maybe it's Judah. Surely Judah will be a paragon of virtue, worthy to carry on the promise of the coming king. Maybe he's the heir. Well, let's read the, the story and let's find out. Genesis 38. We're going to read the whole chapter. It happened at the time, at that time, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that, his, that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, 
to, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you will give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite to take the, back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, the man to whom these belong, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. And so reads one of the most sordid stories in all of the Bible. This is the word of the Lord. Just when you think the sons of Jacob could not go any lower, down they plunge. Friends, after reading this, what's your opinion about Judah's chances of being the heir of the promise? Well, surely not. He's a scoundrel of a man. Well, we'll answer that question soon enough. But for now, let's get into the passage together. Here's the main idea. I think of the text. I try to give you one every week. The main idea of the text that hopefully is the agenda setter for the sermon. And it is this. Nothing can stop our God from keeping his promises. He delights to turn arrogant wickedness into scandalous grace. Nothing can stop our God from keeping his promises to us. He delights to turn even the worst wickedness into scandalous grace. Two points this morning reflecting that main point. Number one, arrogant wickedness. Number two, scandalous grace. Friends, this tawdry, seedy account in the life of Judah should cause us to marvel once again at God's grace together. 
Don't shut off your brain and your heart this morning because this account seems so out there, right? Listen to how one commentator, Liam Goliger, described this story in the Bible. He said, he said this, when we read it today, we find a world very different from ours in terms of technology and sociology, but it is not different from ours in terms of morality and relationships. Yeah, friends, we may live in a world where these marriage customs that we read about seem weird or the sheep shearing parties or temple prostitutes or signets or staffs and all the rest seem very foreign to us. The forms have changed, but friends, the elements have not. We do live in a world full of this very type of arrogance and selfishness and lust and greed and disregard for the vulnerable. This is still a Genesis 3 world. It's true of the world today. If we're honest, it's true of our own hearts as we struggle with the very same types of sin that we see here in Genesis 38. Friends, what becomes clear is that Judah's only hope, your only hope, my only hope, is the grace and mercy of our God. And that's what Genesis 38, believe it or not, puts on display. The unmerited grace of God to rebels like us. So let's get into it. Number one, arrogant wickedness. Verse one says that, as, that soon after Joseph's brother sold him into, into slavery, Judah, quote, went down from his brothers. Now, notice just above this in chapter 37, verse 35, Jacob said that he would go down to Sheol, mourning Joseph, whom he thought to be dead. And then a chapter forward over in 39, verse one, Joseph had been, quote, brought down to Egypt. So you see how Moses uses that term, go down, same phrase to be comparing and contrasting Jacob and Judah and Joseph. Now, clearly, Joseph had been brought down to, to Egypt against his will, but Judah, on the other hand, chose willfully to go down geographically from his family. And I, and I think it's obvious what Moses is doing as the, as the narrator. He's saying that this, this downward, southward change of location was matched by a downward trend in Judah's morality. He's on the slippery slope to wickedness. Now, the text doesn't tell us why Judah left home, but I can't help but speculate a little bit with a bit of a sanctified imagination, right? Yeah, I think it's possible that Judah's conscience could not stand watching his father Jacob grieve the loss of Joseph. I think it's possible, knowing that he, Judah, was complicit in that evil. But for whatever reason, Judah take, took off and he, he left the family of promise and he, he turned aside into a house of a Canaanite. Judah, friends, is making himself home in Canaan. Verse 2 tells us that, that Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite woman named Shua, and he, and he noticed the words again, he took her, he saw her, he took her, and he went into her. He saw and he took. Friends, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's as old as the Garden of Eden. They saw, they took. Judah was captivated by the lust of his eyes. He seized what he desired, no matter that she was a Canaanite. And in taking a Canaanite wife, Judah proved that he had no regard for the promises of God. In fact, by turning his back on his family, he turned his back on God's promises, didn't he? These promises of land, seed, and blessing. He sought those very things among the people of the land that God had promised to curse. So at this point, we, we would say that Judah was on the Esau track of life. That's, that's where Judah is going. 
He belittled God's promises and he intermarried with the Canaanites. Now, over the next few years, Judah and his wife, as we saw, have had several children, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And when Er was of a marrying age, Judah arranged for him to marry a woman named Tamar, presumably also a Canaanite. And all this seems well and good. It almost seems like God is blessing Judah, right? He's got, he's got a big family. Things seem to go, be going well until verse 7. It's abrupt and shocking. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Friends, we're not told what Er did, but, but this must have been a vile man because this is the first time in all of Genesis that it's recorded that the Lord put a man to death. Oh, sure, he's, he's, put, the, he's put to death groups of people. We know about the flood. We know about Sodom and Gomorrah, but never recorded a single individual until Er, the son of Judah. It's a sobering reminder that the wages for sin is death. This is the just recompense of human evil, the wrath of God. Sin, friends, isn't fundamentally an offense against others. Fundamentally, sin is treason against the high king of heaven, who is incomparably good and holy and just. In verse 8, Judah instructs Onan, his secondborn, to have sexual relations with Tamar in order to perform the duty of the brother-in-law to her and to raise up offspring for your brother. Whoa, <laughs> what is going on here? Well, Judah's instinct at this point, believe it or not, is right. To us, this seems bizarre, right? But it was a practice not only common in the ancient Near East and many different cultures, but this practice was codified in the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter 25. You see, widowhood in the ancient world was often a one-way ticket to a life of destitution and poverty. And if the woman had no children through her husband, there was no possibility of the family inheritance being passed down through her family. And so the custom in many cultures in the ancient world was, and then part of God's covenant instruction in Deuteronomy was that the husband's brother, the brother-in-law should marry the widow in order to, to raise up offspring underneath the brother's name. We call this leveret marriage. In case you're wondering, that word levir and leveret, leveret is Latin for husband's brother. That's where we get the word. So that's what's going on here. Leveret marriage was kind of like an ancient form of our social security system, right? It was designed to mitigate the poverty and the plight of a childless widow. We, we just read of this, the, the principle behind this custom when we read Ruth earlier, where Boaz became the kinsman redeemer for the widowed and destitute Ruth. And so Judah instructed Onan, Tamar's levir, his, her, her brother-in-law, to go into Tamar and to fulfill his duty. And verse 9 tips us off to what Onan was thinking and why he did what he did. The scripture says, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. In other words, the graphic description that follows is about who has the birthright. As long as Tamar remained childless, Onan thinks, and the deceased heir has no heir, the birthright was whose? It was Onan's. 
he would receive the inheritance or his son if he had one. And so rather than fulfill his duty to Tamar and sacrificial love, Onan played the part on the outside, but secretly hijacked the situation for his own selfish purposes. Each time he went into Tamar, Onan practiced natural contraception so that Tamar might not conceive and so that he remained the heir. He thought no one would know. What he was doing was in secret, obviously. Tamar clearly too ashamed to tell. And so Onan used her for his selfish gain. And then verse 10 gives us this great commentary and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Friend, what a reminder again. Onan thought his wickedness was in the dark, but it was in the light of God's sight. The Lord saw and he always does. Well, Judah's sons are two for two, aren't they, in falling under God's wrath. Now, on a side note, I just want to mention this. On a side note, perhaps you've heard some Christians use the story of Onan as a reason for why contraception is biblically wrong. And friends, I just want to say clearly the issue here is not contraception. It's the wicked heart of Onan that selfishly refused to perform his duty and to give his brother heir an heir, okay? And like his father Judah, Onan likewise showed no regard for the promises of God. He had no interest in producing offspring, even for his sister-in-law, by which God's promises might continue. And so that's why the Lord judged him. Now, all of that sordid info is, is important context for what Judah did next. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Why? Why? For he feared that Shelah would die <laughs> like his brothers. In other words, Judah is so, so spiritually dull that he superstitiously thought that Tamar was the problem. Right? Man, she's, she's, she must be a witch of some kind. She's jinxing my sons. Maybe she's just got bad juju, whatever it was. Rather than understand that the Lord judged his sons for their sin, Judah blamed Tamar. And he, he callously sent her away into a life of wid widowhood and destitution until, he says, Shelah, his third son, was old enough to marry her. But friends, he had no intention of that, did he? He had no intention of giving Shelah to Tamar. He wanted to Photoshop Tamar out of the family. Push her to the side. Hopefully no one will notice. Now let's think about this for a second. Let's just, let's just meditate on the arrogant wickedness of Judah and his sons. Judah, no care for the promises of God and marries a Canaanite. Heir, so evil that the Lord put him to death. Onan, so selfish and promise despising that the Lord put him to death too. And in, re in return, Judah was so calloused toward his daughter-in-law that he consigned her to a life of widowhood and destitution by refusing to give her Shelah under the leveret custom of the day. Friends, where in the world are the godly men in this story? You can't find any. There are none. They're all wicked. Every last one of them is living like the Canaanites. And the fallout, unfortunately, is seen in the life of Tamar. Friends, when men don't have integrity, 
when we selfishly pursue our own agendas, it's often the women in our lives who suffer. It's a lesson for us as husbands and dads and, and brothers to our sisters here in the church. When our selfishness spreads like gangrene to, to infect the lives of others around us, it's, don't be surprised if it's the women in our lives who bear the brunt of our sin first. It's a note of warning for us. But friends, we want to turn quickly from seeing this arrogant wickedness to seeing God's scandalous grace. So let's look at the rest of the chapter. The stage is now set, right? We understand the context for Tamar's action. She is desperate. And might I say that she is extremely loyal. She's a Canaanite, but rather than, than move on and marry a Canaanite man, she demonstrated an undying loyalty to her deceased husband, Er. Man, she, she bore up under Onan's humiliating treatment. She dutifully waited for Shelah to be given to her as Judah had promised. I mean, she is showing remarkable loyalty. Verse 14 says that eventually Tamar came to realize that, yeah, Judah, he's got no intention of giving Shelah to me under the Leveret custom. So she's, she's destitute and she's desperate. And so what she decides to do next really is, is clawing to get back into what is rightfully hers. When Judah's wife passed away, Tamar sprang into action. She heard that Judah was headed to Timnah to shear his sheep with his old friend, Hira, the Adulamite. Now, whenever this guy, whenever this guy Hira is around, Judah gets into trouble. Did you notice that? He's not a good friend. Now, scholars say these, these sheep shearing events involve lots of partying. It's kind of like the, the Canaanite version of Mardi Gras, if you will. And so, so, so Tamar wasn't just setting her trap at a farm event, okay? She was setting her trap at a time of, of natural frivolity. It would not have been uncommon at these settings for, for temple prostitutes to be there. After all, the Canaanites, we know from the rest of the Bible, believed that sexual relations on earth incited the gods to bless their land and their livestock with fertility. And so Tamar, according to verse 14, took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Naim, which is on the road to Timnah. Now, friends, before we go farther, just think with me what an indictment Tamar's actions were on Judah and on his character. This man must have been marked by incredibly obvious wickedness because Tamar's entire ruse banked on her assumption that she could indeed easily lure Judah to do what he did, right? And again, we see Judah's disregard for the Lord. He's, he's willing to proposition a temple prostitute and participate in the very pagan rituals of the people of the land. And sure enough, verse 15 says that Judah saw her. He propositioned her. Had no idea, obviously, that she was his daughter-in-law. And Tamar plays this so shrewdly, right? She not only makes Judah promise to pay in the form of the young goat from the flock, but she takes collateral from him to make sure that he'll give that, right? And it's not just any collateral, but the very things that would identify Judah as Judah. 
She demands that he give her his signet and his cord and his staff. Now, yeah, we don't carry around those things, right? So let me tell you what those things meant. The signet was a stamp seal with a certain engraved design on it that identified Judah. And the signet was worn on a cord around the neck. And it could have been used for commerce or business transactions, like a signature today, right? And Judah's staff was his symbol of authority in his family. Maybe had a distinctive design on it as well. So, so do you understand what, what Tamar is asking Judah to do? She is asking him to give her as collateral his personal identification documents. Yeah, just, just hand me your driver's license, right? Your social security card, your passport, maybe your credit card too. We would say, Judah, this is insane. Don't do this. But sadly, Judah is so full of lust in this moment that he is blind to the sheer audacity and stupidity of what she is asking him to do. I mean, can you even imagine? No one in their right mind would do this. But sin had driven Judah off the brink of reality. Now, just an interesting biblical tidbit, that word Naim, where she met Judah, is the word eyes. Of course, Tamar wearing a veil that would reveal only her eyes. That's all that Judah could have seen. And his eyes were so blind to who she was and her ruse, but it, it, he was also blind to his own wickedness. But the Lord is about to open his eyes. Look at the end of verse 18. So Judah gave them to her, these identification documents, right? And he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her garment, she put on the, the garments of her widowhood. Friends, this is incredible. Not only do we see the desperation of Tamar and the lust of Judah, but the providence of God. Judah only slept with her once, and yet the Lord opened her womb. She conceived through that single encounter. In verse 20 to 23, Judah circled back to pay her, and of course, of course, <laughs> she's nowhere to be found. Verse 23 it starts to show how Judah's sin was starting to come back at him, right? He knew that if he really tried to investigate who had his items, right, he was going to have to admit, number one, that he slept with a prostitute, and he would probably have to submit to a public inquiry of some sort about, you know, what these documents or what these identification items looked like. So here in this moment, Judah again reveals his true colors. He's not remorseful or repentant. He's just protective of his reputation. He doesn't care about what the Lord thinks of him or his sin, but what other people might think of him. Three months went by. We're almost done. Three months went by, and of course, Tamar's pregnancy starts showing. Word gets back to Judah that, that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, she's pregnant by immorality. So, so by remaining a widow in her parents' house, she would have abstained naturally from sexual activity. So the assumption is that, well, she must have gotten pregnant by extramarital means. And look at Judah's reaction in verse 24. Bring her out and let her be burned. Are you kidding me? Do you see this hypocrisy? I mean, it's like plain as day, right? Here, here's a guy who was willing to shamelessly use a temple prostitute who then was prepared to burn a woman who supposedly acted in the same way. He 
He's a deeply immoral man ready to condemn the immoral. Friends, this is what happens in a heart that refuses to deal with sin honestly and just begins to focus on the sins of others. You tolerate your own lust, for instance. You tolerate your own pride and your own gossip and slander, but you'll jump all over someone else when you see that behavior in them. It's the height of self-righteousness, isn't it? Friends, don't be surprised that when, when your pride that protects your own sin hypocritically condemns the sins of others, this is what pride does. And this is what Judah did. He's elevating himself while denigrating his daughter-in-law. He's willing to have her killed without any explanation, no hearing, just kill her. But next, we see Tamar's mic drop moment. At the last possible time, as she's being brought out to be burned, she presents Judah these, with these identification items and says, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. I mean, can you imagine this? All the chatter just stops. <sighs> You're a pin drop. And then Judah obviously publicly exposed for, for who he was and what he had done, identified him. Yep, these are mine. But then remarkably, he goes a step farther. He not only owned the items, he owned his sin. And not just his sin of immorality, his sin of withholding Shelah from Tamar. Verse 26 says that he identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. He repents of his callousness, not just his immorality, and he did not know her again. Friends, this is remarkable. Humility is not what we've come to expect from Judah, but here it is on full display. Judah admitted his own unrighteousness. Well, the end of the chapter, verses 27 to 30, record the birth of twins to, to Tamar. And yet again, just like with the earlier twins in Genesis, right? Jacob and Esau, there's a bit of a tussle to see who comes first. So, so it must be significant, right? This is the second twin tussle we've seen at birth. One baby stuck out his hand first, but then the other baby fought his way out before him. And so they called that baby Perez or Breach. And they called the other Zerah. And that's the story. Interlude over to the Joseph story. Tawdry tale told, Right? Now back to Joseph in chapter 39. And what in the world, right? <laughs> Why is this story important enough that it interrupts the flow of what happened in Joseph's life? And what are we supposed to take away? Well, first, I think Moses is obviously, friends, contrasting for us the wickedness of Judah and the righteousness of Joseph. That's one reason. Judah pursued immorality, and we're going to see next week that Joseph over and over again withstood multiple temptations toward adultery with his master's wife. And so there's this clear contrast between the character of these brothers. And so because of that, I do think we're, we're meant to look at Judah's story and his life and be warned. You may think that your little choices are no big deal, friend. 
But every sinful choice we make has a corroding effect on our soul. And they lead us down a road many times that we had no intention of going down. The hidden lust, the financial impropriety, the, the worldly ambitions and so on always takes us further than we wanted to go. It makes us give more than we intended to give. Judah, Judah started with a simple choice of turning his back on God's promises. And then one compromise after the other, after the other, after the other, opened a dam for a flood of wickedness in his life that had devastating consequences for his family, for Tamar, for himself. And if God had not intervened, friend, I believe that Judah would have fallen under God's judgment, just like his sons. So there's this contrast that, we, that we're meant to see. But secondly, on a much happier note, this story shows us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Friends, God used what happened at Naim to open Judah's eyes and to transform him. It seems that when he was publicly exposed, something happened deep in Judah's soul. Because guess what? When we see Judah for the rest of the story, it's always in a good light. I love it. In chapter 43, he pledges to his dad, Jacob, his protection of Benjamin, the youngest son, on the trip to Egypt. And then in later chapters, when Joseph tests his brothers, guess who steps forward and pleaded with, with Joseph for his mercy? It was Judah. Based on his care for his father, Jacob, this man had changed. God changed this man. Man, I, I wonder if you, you're here today and you think, man, I'm beyond the reach of God's grace. Maybe you're too ashamed to come to Christ because of what you know that you've done with your life. Maybe if you were to tally up your sin, it would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Judas. There are skeletons in your closet that you want to keep locked shut and throw away the key. You think there's just no way that God would want you. You're too dirty. You're too far gone. Friend, look at God's grace in Judah's life. This is what God does. He's full of mercy and compassion for repentant sinners like Judah and like you and me. What, what makes you eligible for God's mercy isn't a flawless life of perfection, but indeed a life of sin and wickedness. That's what makes you eligible. Your resume of sin against God makes you a perfect candidate for his redeeming love. So friend, what are you waiting for? If you'll come to God today trusting in the work of his son in your place, it's not just that God will wipe your slate clean and give you a fresh start. God will give you a new slate. He'll transform your life from the inside out and make you a brand new person and begin to shape your life into who he wants you to be. Praise God, right? Let's just pause there. Praise the Lord. No one is beyond the reach of his grace. And the, but the primary reason I think that this sordid interlude is there in the, in the Joseph story is how it fits like a, like a missing puzzle piece into God's big story of redemption. It highlights the glory of God's plan. So in order to see what God was up to, we really do have to turn to some other passages. So have your, 
flipping fingers ready, right? You're turning fingers ready. And let's turn to Genesis chapter 46 and verse 12. Genesis 46, 12. Here's the list of the sons, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. Parentheses, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Okay, so from Genesis 46, who is carrying on Judah's line? It's Perez, right? It's not Zerah. Perez is the son who will carry on Judah's line. Perez's sons are mentioned, not Zerah's, okay? So we learn, we're learning that Perez is, is important. Now, now flip over even more to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. And look at verse 8. Okay, Jacob here is at the end of his life. The, the patriarch is at the end of his life, and he is prophetically pronouncing blessing over his sons. That's what he's doing here. And, and notice what he says to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Oh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of, of the peoples. Friends, at the beginning of the sermon, I asked, who would be the heir to carry on the promise of the coming king? Here's your answer. It's Judah. Not because he was a paragon of virtue, but because he was a trophy of God's grace. He would be the one to triumph over his enemies. He's the one who would be like the lion, the kingly line that, that was promised to Abraham and to Jacob would now flow through the line of Judah, the scoundrel, the redeemed one. So much so that it's not just that, that Judah's offspring will rule, but he's going to receive the obedience of all the peoples of the world, people from every tribe, every tongue and nation. Friends, this is astonishing. Now open your bulletin again to our scripture reading in the book of Ruth. So Joanne read this, Boaz fulfilled his obligation as kinsman redeemer to Ruth, right? This leveret principle. And together, Boaz and Ruth bore a son named Obed, who was the grandfather of who? Of King David. But notice the genealogy at the end of Ruth 4. Whose genealogy is it? It's Perez's genealogy. The boy born of Tamar through scandal with Judah. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Genesis 49 is true, according to Ruth. Judah's line through his son Perez is the line of the king. But that's not our final stop. Our final stop this morning is Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the first verse of the New Testament. 
Sorry that I don't have page numbers for you again. That would have been good. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and on it goes. Oh, friends, if your heart isn't leaping for joy right now, something that is wrong with your heart, or else I've done a really bad job of explaining this to you. Because not only was Perez the son, of, the son of scandal, the ancestor of the great King David, he was the ancestor of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Here's Judah in sin, trading in his staff to Tamar in a night of humiliation and shame. But God turned that act around and in scandalous grace so that the scepter, this, this staff of ruling would not depart from his line. And indeed, it, it rests in the hands of the Messiah. Judah, through Perez, became the ancestor of the one who would sit on David's throne forever, our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the Bible presents our Lord Jesus as fully God and fully man. He, he came to make what was, what was wrong, made wrong, all the way back in the garden, right. He came to crush our enemy. And he came to conquer sin and death. And guess, what he, guess how he did that? He did that by living the life that guys like Judah and you and me should have lived but didn't. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. And yet wicked men unjust, unjustly put Jesus to death. And yet this very death was purposed by God to redeem and to forgive his people. On the cross, what, what was happening on the cross was that Jesus was bearing the wrath of God that we rightly deserved. For all those who would come to him by faith, he loved us unto death. And yet because he was sinless, death had no claim on him. And on the third day, he rose up in victory, conquering sin and death forever. So that sinners like Judah and sinners like Tamar and sinners like you and me might not only know the forgiveness of our sin as if that we're not enough, but the hope of resurrection life with him forever. So friends, in case what I, I said earlier didn't sink in, here it is again for you. You want to know why you're not beyond the reach of God's grace? It's because the eternal son, the creator of the universe, stooped down as the son of man to be identified with the likes of Tamar and Judah. He identified himself with sinners like you and me. And then he did that that what, what, what we in a million attempts could not do. If we had a million attempts at this life, we could never accomplish what Jesus did in achieving our salvation. And at the end of the Bible, you turn to the book of Revelation, you turn to, you turn to chapter five, John pictures all of heaven gathered, right? gathered as one to hear who is worthy to take up the scroll and to supervise the unrolling of human history and God's plan of salvation. And what happened? John, the, the author of Revelation, wept because no one was found worthy. And then one of the heavenly elders said to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to, to open the book of history and to fulfill God's plan to save the world? Not the lion from the tribe of Joseph. The lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the one who conquered sin and death. He's the one who, who crushed the head of our ancient foe. He alone is worthy. So, so you want to know why, why is this sordid story of Genesis 38 plopped down in the middle of the Joseph story? Well, it's, it's because of this, friend. Like the, the providence of God that sent Joseph to Egypt ahead of his brothers, right? Through sin in which Judah was complicit, that, that providence was designed not just to protect the whole family in general, right? From famine one day but it was really designed to protect one boy conceived through a one night stand with a destitute widow masquerading as a prostitute. The rest of the story of Joseph highlights God's providence and his protection of Perez, the son of Judah, the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our King and our God, we bow before you this morning and we just, we worship you for this type of meticulous sovereignty, this type of gracious intervention in Judah's life, this type of gracious intervention in our lives. When we were running far from you in the direct opposite direction of you, you rescued us, you intervened. And even as we're gonna sing now, oh great God, you made our hearts alive that were dead, that had no taste for heaven's joys, and you placed them there. And you granted us eyes to see and a desire to follow Jesus. And so we just simply glorify you this morning. And even as we come to the Lord's table here in a bit, we'd simply praise you for this type of amazing mercy to us, to we sinners, totally undeserving of that type of love. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, our King, the great descendant of Perez and of Judah, we praise you for what you have done for us through your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and one day your return. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.